Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the Low Countries Radio, a collaboration between Republic of Amsterdam Radio and the Low Countries website. Celebrating Flemish and Dutch history and culture and its impact on the world today. The Low Countries have long been a metaphorical petri dish of social and technological advancements. As such, the list of Dutch and Flemish inventions, innovations, and discoveries is long and broad-reaching indeed. In this episode, we intend on doing an exploration of our own into the history of some of the intellectual leaps which sprang forth from this soggy corner of Europe and spread far and wide across the globe. Since there is such a vast array of things to choose from, we decided that we would need some kind of framing device to help give this story a little bit of order. Just rattling off a long list of names, objects, or scientific theorems would not make for a very compelling podcast narrative, and creating a top 5 or a top 10 list, yeah, would be a bit too buzzfeed for our tastes. So, instead, we have decided to shuffle completely out of the box and turn to one of the greatest TV shows of the 1990s, Captain Planet and the Planeteers, to help us structure the story of low country inventions and discoveries. Because, well, why not? If you're not familiar with the show, Captain Planet is a superhero on a mission to save Earth from pollution. He is summoned into existence by five kids from different continents who use special rings to harness the power of different elements. Earth, fire, wind, water, and heart. When their powers combine, Captain Planet shows up to save the day. We are going to borrow those elements, earth, fire, wind, water, and heart, to relate stories of scientific advancements made in the Low Countries throughout history. If we wanted to be more highbrow about this structure and why we've chosen it, we could say that we were following the four elements of ancient Greek philosophy recorded by Empodocles in the middle 5th century BCE. He posited that the foundation of the world was the elements of earth, fire, water, and air, and that these were brought together to form matter by the divine forces of love and strife. Like pretty much all of European thought and science, the Dutch leaned heavily on ancient Greek theories of epistemology. We could also try to justify using Captain Planet by saying that, when looking at the inventions of a particular group of people, it is important to remember that human innovation does not happen in a void. Like the summoning of Captain Planet, invention and discovery depends upon the combined power of intergenerational ideas, experiments, and accidents. Knowledge builds upon knowledge, and the inventions that came out of the Low Countries were built upon mathematical and scientific ideas garnered from places and societies all around Europe 
Africa, Asia, and the Americas. But the fact is, we are just children of the 90s who love the low countries and who really liked Captain Planet. What is more, the beautiful thing about podcasts is that we can literally do whatever we want. So without any further ado, let us delve into the wonderful world of inventions and discoveries in the low countries, looking at some world-changing innovations through the categories of... What better place to start than with the Earth itself? Okay, we're not claiming that people in the low countries discovered the Earth. That would be ridiculous. However, the way that we commonly perceive the Earth, in particular the image of it which most of us hold in our minds, the one that we see on the maps that we use to navigate through our daily lives, can very much be attributed to mathematical, astronomical and geographical innovations that happened in the Low Countries from the early 16th century, especially through the work of Gerardus Mercator. Mercator's parents, Hubert and Emerentia Kramer, were originally from the town of Gangelt in the Duchy of Julik, in today's Germany but close to the Dutch border. The family was relatively poor, with Hubert working as a cobbler to support his family of seven children. War, famine, and other hardships drove the Kramers to head west, towards the town of Rupelmonde in Flanders, where Hubert's brother resided as a priest. It was there that Mercator was born on the 5th of March, 1512, being given the name Gert de Kramer. At 14, his father died, but his uncle's higher social standing saw the young Gert sent to a town with one of the most difficult to pronounce names for the non-native Dutch speaker, Saratoken Bosch. It's not for no reason that everybody just calls it Den Bosch. There he entered a school run by the Brethren of the Common Life. This was a lay educational system which was largely responsible for the relatively high levels of common class literacy across the Low Countries at the time. It was under the tutelage of the Brethren that Mercator began his lifelong passion for the Italic script, which would become and remains common on printed maps and globes as a result. When he was 18, his mother also died, and now an orphan, he was sent by his uncle to enroll in the University of Lofen. It was upon his immersion into the academic world of Lofen that he changed his name from Kramer, a German word meaning merchant, to the Latinized and more fancy-sounding Mercator. The University of Lofen in Brabant was founded in 1425, making it the oldest in the Low Countries. By the time Mercator began his studies there in 1530, it had become a hub of theology and intelligentsia, which boasted influential globe and instrument makers, mathematicians, and cartographers. This all catered to the growing demand for navigational maps and instruments that existed from nearby Antwerp. At the time, Antwerp was Europe's biggest international port. Along with seafarers and merchants, wealthy benefactors provided avenues of income by commissioning and purchasing globes and maps. Mercator's studies were initially projected to take him towards a life of theological contemplation in the priesthood. He became disillusioned, however, 
by the inconsistencies between established church interpretations of the cosmos and how these understandings clashed with the frontline advancements in astronomical and mathematical understanding he was being exposed to. He began to tread down a path that some would call heretical. The University of Lofen housed a strong Catholic establishment as well, and more than several of its professors would play roles in the inquisitions that would ramp up in the 1540s, and this was something that the school of cartographers in that university would continually have to struggle with. One of Mercator's contemporaries and direct influences, the older Franciscus Monicus, actually called the church-sanctioned Ptolemaic system of geography a Geographum Hallucinato, which means hallucinatory geography, but also sounds very much like it could be a Harry Potter spell that makes you think you are a mountain or something. Mercator first met Monicus after graduating in 1532, and from this time distinctly feared himself away from theological study, setting off more stringently in the direction of geography, mathematics, and astronomy. After a couple of years away from Lofen, he returned in 1534 and dived into studying these subjects. He became an earnest pupil and companion of Chema Frisius, another preeminent mathematician at the time. In 1536, Mercator, Frisius, and a goldsmith called Chaspard van der Heide completed a terrestrial globe together, Mercator having done the engravings of the text. This costly and admired piece elevated Mercator's standing in the advanced cartographic scene of the Low Countries and introduced him to the practice of making money from his work. Professionally, Mercator did not look back from this point. Over the next five years, he produced four works which would further cement his ever more esteemed reputation. A map of Palestine and the so-called Holy Land, a map of the world, a map of Flanders, and a terrestrial globe of his own. Among the patrons of each of these works was the Emperor, Charles V, to whom Mercator dedicated the map of Flanders. But it would not be all smooth sailing. His work, which deviated from the church-approved teachings about the earth and the stars, as well as his correspondence and personal interaction with acquaintances like the accused heretic Monarchus and other prominent Lutheran-minded characters, brought Mercator under the spotlight of the Inquisition. Having a rich and rigid history of theological conservatism, the University of Lofen was not a place where one's alternative ideas could escape attention for long. In 1544, a list was released of the names of 42 accused Lutherans in Lofen who were to be arrested. This included monks, artisans, and academics. Mercator's name was one of them. He was arrested and languished in prison for seven months before eventually being released. We can speculate that there must have been a few awkward conversations with colleagues upon his return to the university, with one recorded comment from him saying that it was a, quote, most unjust persecution, end quote. After his release, he spent the following five or so years constructing the most up-to-date map of Europe going around, as well as a celestial globe to match his previous terrestrial one. In 1552, Mercator moved to Duisburg in the Duchy of Cleves. The Duke of Cleves had shown himself to be a humanist ruler. He sought to fashion harmony between Protestants and Catholics in his domain, 
and he was trying to attract scholars to create a new center of learning in Duisburg. The opportunities and possibilities in this must have appealed to MacArthur, and whether or not his experiences as an accused heretic gave greater impetus to his decision, he took the chance and moved to a place that was not gripped by church authoritarianism, the way that Flanders and Brabant had become. In Duisburg, he set about working on what we might call his magnum opus, which would include a composition of over a hundred maps, a section on terrestrial geography, a section on astronomy, his own depiction of the creation, and a chronology of historical events. As a part of this, in 1569, he produced a new world map, which he called Nova et Octa Orbis Terrae Descriptio Ad Usum Navigantium Emendate Accommodata, which is my terrible Latin for new and more complete representation of the terrestrial globe properly adapted for use in navigation. Not only was this the first map to have the term North America applied to what is now North America, but it also featured a clever design trick that would influence how the Earth was to be perceived for centuries to come. The biggest issue in cartography of the day lay in its practical application to seafarers who wanted to be able to follow a compass bearing. Given that maps are projections of a 3D globe onto a 2D surface, it means that no matter how you draw it, you're going to get distortions in terms of area, size, distance, and scale. MacArthur created a map where the lines of latitude got slightly larger the further away they were from the equator. The problem it solved was that lines on the map were true representations of how a ship might follow a constant compass bearing, a straight line up meaning north, a straight line to the right meaning east, etc. Today we know it as the MacArthur Projection. Although MacArthur's original map has obviously been improved upon, this projection has gone on to influence not only the world view of navigators, but also that of literally billions of humans. It is the standard map which you would have seen on your classroom wall in school, the same one used on Google and Apple Maps, until you zoom out far enough for those to convert into a globe view. But the trick which MacArthur used to solve the problem of straight lines, the way he made lines of latitude larger the further away they were from the equator, introduced other problems with unforeseen consequences. For one thing, a straight line on a map isn't necessarily the shortest distance you can travel between places. That's why when you're in a plane watching the navigation map, you appear to be following a curved line when really you're going straight. But also the area of the continent as they're depicted on the map are completely distorted, with those along the equator such as Africa and South America rendered much smaller than places further north such as Europe and North America. If you have ever looked at a map and thought, wow, Greenland is huge, then you have been fooled by the Mercator projection. On Mercator's map, Africa and Greenland look to be roughly the same size. In reality, however, Africa is more than 14 times larger than Greenland. Some critics suggest that the oversized projections of Europe and North America lead to an unconscious feeling of colonial superiority over Africa. Bigger on the map must mean more land, which means more resources, and everybody knows that means you're better. Although MacArthur himself could never have known about 
what possible social and political impacts his projection would have on the world for centuries after his death, it is interesting to think how this small piece of graphic design from the Low Countries, from the 16th century, has shaped the worldview and perhaps reinforced the biases of literally billions of human beings. And that, dear listeners, is how Gerardos Mercado summoned the Earth. We are going to take some liberties on this one, but as mentioned earlier, we can do whatever we want. After all, isn't that in the spirit of innovation? Among its many utilities, fire, and particularly the sun, of course, has long been important for humans as our main source of light. And it was through the manipulations of light in the 17th century that two people from the Low Countries Master Christian Huygens was born into the upper echelon of Dutch society in The Hague in 1629, just as the new Dutch Republic was reaching its apex of wealth, education, quality of life, and naval domination. His father, Constantine, was a famous poet who had become an exalted lord, a secretary to the House of Orange, and who included the French king among his patrons. Christian, his second son, received the best education that money, wealth, and influence could buy. This basically meant staying at home and learning from the best tutors, as well as being exposed to the cream of contemporary European intelligentsia, many of whom his father counted as correspondents. This included mathematician Maron Mersen, as well as Galileo Galilei, who in 1633 had been condemned to life imprisonment in Italy, his work banned by the Roman Inquisition. At around 70 years of age, Galileo completed his final work, known as Two New Sciences, and given that his work was banned in Italy, had it smuggled to Leiden in Holland, where it was published for the first time. Another was his father's friend, René Descartes, who lived in Holland for over 20 years and was there in the 1630s. This was indeed a fortuitous educational situation, but Haugen's was also naturally intelligent and able to make the most of it, despite suffering occasional bouts of crippling depression throughout his life. He went to study in Leiden and Breda before becoming a diplomat for a spell. His abilities earned him a reputation as a highly skilled mathematician, and still only in his 20s in the 1650s, he took this reputation to international levels by debating the merits of the mathematics in the work of the English philosopher Thomas Hobbes. Around the same time, Haugen's sought to understand the theory of telescopic lenses. It is not certain who invented telescopes, but the first patent for one was submitted to the States General of the Netherlands by a man called Hans Lipperhey in Middelburg in 1608, and it was this which Galileo had improved upon to greater fame. Hagen's intrigue in the practice led him and his brother to grinding their own lenses in the 1650s. It was not long into his lens-making pursuits that, in 1654, he developed a new and better technique for grinding and polishing them. This eventually led him to creating the first telescope that employed not just one, but two lenses. With these, he studied the sky. Humans had long known of some of the other planets in our solar system, but the naked eye can only get you so far. The planet Saturn, for example, was not an unknown entity. 
After all, we had named it millennia before, but nobody had thought that it might have any different or interesting traits. As people began to experiment with telescopes, they became fuzzily aware of some of these strange traits. Did Saturn have what looked like arms? Using the lenses that he developed in 1655, Huggins became the first person to see Saturn with enough clarity to see why it looked odd. He identified that it had a moon, which he called Titan, and a year later, he became the first person to accurately describe that the planet had a ring, which is what others had seen as arms. By 1659, Huggins had enough evidence to publish these discoveries in the Systema Saturnium, which remains seen as one of the foundational works of early European science. This work also allowed him to develop a theory behind telescopes and light refraction. There is evidence suggesting that around the same time he published Systema Saturnium, he invented the Laterna Magica, or the Magic Lantern, an image projection device that became wildly popular in the use of entertainment from the 17th century on. All of this led him to discover the nature of light refraction, and in 1678, he presented a wave theory of light to the Paris Academy of the Sciences, which, once it was published in 1690, became the first mathematical theory of light. One of Haugen's contemporaries, with whom he would form a solid acquaintance and mutual respect, was Antony van Leeuwenhoek. He had a very different background from Haugen's and was born to working-class parents in Delft in 1632. Van Leeuwenhoek's father died when he was only five, and although his mother remarried, by the time he was 16 he had to support himself, which he did by finding work as an apprentice bookkeeper in an Amsterdam draper's shop. In 1654, Van Leeuwenhoek got married, left Amsterdam, returned to Delft, and started a haberdashers of his own. There is unfortunately scant evidence of his personal life or his work as a draper. He was clearly propelled by a superior intellect though, and based on jobs he got, must have earned quite the tidy reputation. He received important government postings and responsibilities, including Chamberlain for the Delft Sheriff's Office, land surveyor for the government of Holland, and, best of all in my opinion, the wine gauger of Delft. Having forged himself a neat little role in the municipal mechanics of Delft, Van Leeuwenhoek also carried on running his drapery shop. It was in the application of his intellect to this trade that he too harnessed the power of fire through light and helped advance human knowledge. Wishing to be better able to see the quality of threads in his products, he turned his hand to the trendy craft of lens grinding as well. This brought him into contact with the aforementioned Christian Haugens, and although at first Haugens was skeptical about the veracity of Leeuwenhoek's work, one issue being that nobody could make lenses that magnified objects as much as he could and so verify his observations, eventually both Christian and Constantine Haugens became steadfast supporters of his work. Van Leeuwenhoek worked on learning how to grind glass shards down to minuscule depths and polishing them to a clarity that would magnificently magnify any object they were held over. He had to solve other problems in actually using these lenses in any practical sense, namely in how to hold the lens and the object being studied 
in close enough proximity to one another to allow enough light in to do this, and all while keeping his hands free to be able to manipulate the focus. That's where the microscope came in. There were already microscope models which he could draw inspiration from, such as those used by Galileo in Italy and Robert Hooke in England. Most of these were compound microscopes, using multiple lenses. The lenses that von Leeuwenhoek was grinding, however, were far more powerful, but they were not suited to the compound design. Around the same time, there were others in the Low Countries who were experimenting with single-lens models, and Leeuwenhoek combined this knowledge with instructions made by Robert Hooke in his seminal 1665 work, Micrographia, on how to mount a single lens. He devised his own system of screws and his own model, and these allowed him to overcome those issues. Soon, Van Leeuwenhoek was using his supremely powerful lenses and microscope designs to explore a world which no human had ever seen. He was the first person to see microbes and bacteria in water, giving them the adorable name Dirches, meaning little animals or animalcules. In 1673, Van Leeuwenhoek submitted his own observations of things that Robert Hooke had described so famously in Micrographia, namely mold, a bee stinger, a bee's eye, and lice, in which he was able to expand on what the English scientists had so sensationally depicted. In 1677, possibly after becoming extremely excited at discovering a whole new microcosm of existence, he became the first person to identify individual spermatozoa, sperm cells. He would continue to study the sperm of various animals for the next 40 years. So thus, harnessing the power of light, by which of course I mean fire, Christian Huygens and Anthony van Leeuwenhoek were able to bring the very far away and the very small, respectively, into the realms of human perspective and understanding for the very first time. This one should be a breeze. Wind is a fairly abundant resource in the low countries and the windmill has long been utilized as a mechanism for harnessing its power. They are not recent inventions, having likely originated in Central Asia millennia ago. However, at some point during the Middle Ages, they increased in number across Europe and especially the low countries. Mills were most commonly used for grinding grains, but in the late 16th century, a millwright from Outgeest in North Holland, called Cornelis Cornelis Zone, made some technological changes to a windmill design that had lasting effects for a completely different purpose. He developed a wind-powered sawmill, and as a result, the Dutch could cut wood into planks faster than anybody had ever managed. At the time of Cornelis Zone's life, one of Holland's biggest industries was shipbuilding. The country was in the early stages of a transformation into a wealthy, independent thalassocracy, a global dominion built on naval supremacy. In the 1590s, they were not quite there yet, but naval exploration was becoming more and more important, and to be an effective naval power, they needed ships, of course. 
Ships required a lot of timber, which Holland was able to bring from the Baltics in vast amounts, but uncut timber needed to be sawed into planks. Traditionally, this was done with a pit saw method. A pit saw is a big saw that requires two people to handle it, one of them standing in a pit under the timber with the other above, the saw being held vertically between them as they heave and hoe their way into the wood, struggling with the difficulties of cutting wood down its grain instead of across it. In this time-tested method, it takes around 120 days for sawyers to process 60 logs into planks. Like most great innovators, what Cornelius Sohn did was take one invention, the windmill, and chuck in another invention, the crankshaft, which allowed for him to convert the spinning motion of the mill's blades into an up and down motion, building a long axle that took the motion away from the structure of the mill he constructed a separate building in which saws could be attached to the up and down motion and through which logs of wood could be pushed, being cut into planks in the process. Cornelis Sohn sought and received a patent for this innovation, details of which were uncovered in the Dordrecht archives in 1917. In the letters of patent, Cornelis Sohn described himself as a, quote, poor farmer with wife and children, end quote, although another contemporary document describes him as a, quote, Sawyer on the Moldike, end quote. A drawing of his design was included, and although it is unknown whether he had already built the structure or was still planning on building one, it was eventually erected, probably around 1592-94, before being moved to Zandam in 1596. This ingenious design had a massive impact on the efficiency of processing timber into planks, which was increased by around 3,000%. Rather than it taking 120 days to process 60 logs, it now took 4 or 5. Yes, you heard that correctly. Soon it was being copied by sawyers and millers around Holland, which presumably gave him the incentive to seek a patent for it. Over the following centuries, the Dutch state would maximize the use of Cornelis Sohn's innovation, the general economic prosperity and growth in industry across the rapidly advancing nation meant that infrastructure and building projects driven by commerce all demanded processed timber. Because of Cornelis Sohn's sawmill, the supply was able to meet the demand. Given the speed by which ships could then be built in the Netherlands, by the 1650s, there were over 15,000 Dutch ships sailing around the planet, far surpassing any other country. For such a small nation, they certainly packed a punch on the stage of European geopolitics, and it is because they had the most superior naval force on the planet. It is arguable that this would not have been possible had Cornelis Cornelis' zone not summoned the wind in the way that he did. Given the wet and boggy nature of the Low Countries, harnessing the power of water has long been integral to the survival of the societies which set themselves up there. Living in a river delta, below sea level, has meant that over centuries people in the Low Countries have become masters at manipulating water to ensure their ability to do one of the most basic things necessary for survival. Not drowning. 
As such, there are a myriad of directions that this segment of the podcast could have gone. In the spirit of Captain Planet, we want to talk about harnessing the power of each element for good, rather than fighting against it. So, instead of trotting the well-worn path of dikes and dams and slouses, we will talk about the invention of something which has saved the lives and property of millions of people around the world, and which most of us take for granted today. The fire hose. For people living in densely populated urban environments, the threat of a fire breaking out and burning down vast swaths of a city has long been an ever-present danger. Being able to successfully bring a conflagration under control and extinguish it has always been extremely valuable. The richest person in ancient Rome, Marcus Licinius Crassus, was said by Plutarch to have made his fortune, quote, out of fire and war, making the public calamities his greatest source of revenue, end quote. Rome had no fire brigade, so Crassus decided to make his own, buying 500 slaves to turn into firefighting teams. When a fire was reported in Rome, Crassus wouldn't simply put it out, however. Instead, he would first offer to buy the burning buildings, or those of their nervous neighbours, as the owners desperately watched their homes burn. For a bargain price, of course. If they didn't go along with this, well, Crassus's fire brigade would pack up and leave and let the fire do its thing. From around the 12th century, a period of urbanization took place in the Low Countries after technological improvements in agriculture saw people leave the countryside in search of new opportunities in the towns which dotted the landscape. By the 15th century, the Low Countries, but especially Flanders, was the most densely populated urban area on the European continent north of the Alps. The problem, of course, with having so many people living and working in mostly wooden houses in such close proximity with one another was that fires were inevitable. Pretty much every town across the Low Countries suffered from a disastrous fire between the 13th and 17th centuries. Such as in Amsterdam in 1421 and 1452, Delft in 1536, Daventer in 1334, Bruges in 1184 and 1415, Antwerp in 1546, Brussels in 1236 and 1276, Ghent in 1120 and 1128, Mechelen in 1342, and Utrecht in 1017, 1131, 1148, 1173, 1177, 1253 and 1279. You get the idea. One of the consequences of these fires was the process of firstening, which doesn't really translate properly into English, so we will just call it stonification. Wait, that sounds like a Friday night. Maybe better. Brickification, whereby cities began to ban the use of woods, reeds, and straw as building materials in place of bricks and stone. Despite this process, however, fire was still an ever-present danger, and the techniques for fighting one were still largely primitive. On the 7th of July, 1652, a huge fire ripped through the old Amsterdam town hall, burning it to the ground. A 15-year-old boy named Jan van der Heyden witnessed this event, and would later write about seeing brave citizens throwing ladders up the sides of the building, forming long human chains and passing buckets of water taken from nearby canals and waterways from person to person in a valiant yet futile attempt to put the fire out. 
as he wrote himself, quote, The pouring could hardly touch the fire, and those who wanted to reach even the outermost parts of the flame needed to expose themselves and put themselves in marked danger. On top of that, the small amount poured from each bucket separately was, due to the heat of the flame, almost completely dried up by the time the next bucket arrived, end quote. The fire was so intense that coins from the city's exchange bank, which were stored inside the old town hall, quote, melted into great lumps, end quote. Jan van der Heide would go on to become what many have described as the Dutch Leonardo da Vinci, a kind of artist-slash-inventor with his most acclaimed paintings focusing on cityscapes and architecture. Amongst many other inventions, he designed a new type of oil lantern, which could work in all weather conditions, have protections to guard against fire risk, and could be mass-produced. And this was used to vastly improve the street lighting system in Amsterdam, Harlem, Groningen, Horn, The Hague, as well as cities further abroad such as Berlin. But witnessing that fire as a young man must have left a strong impression on him because in 1672, he and his brother Nicholas unveiled a new type of fire engine which revolutionarily featured two pump-driven hoses. Fire engines using pumps had already been invented in Germany, but these were not very practical, resembling bathtubs which had been filled with buckets of water, which would then use pumps to fire water out of nozzles towards the flames. But they were difficult to move, difficult to fill, and they weren't really able to shoot water very far. Thunder Hayden's machine, however, was lightweight, and it used one hose made out of a waterproof sailcloth to suck water from a canal or any other body of water into a pump, which would then eject the water at high pressure through a more sturdy leather hose which came out the other side. The hoses were made out of segments which could be connected to one another, meaning they could move water much further distances at much faster speed than before. They could even be carried into burning buildings and used to fight fires from the inside. Thunderheide and his brother were quickly appointed by the mayors of Amsterdam to reorganize the firefighting force. In 1690, Thunderheide and his son, also called Jan, published a work entitled Description of the Newly Invented and Patented Hose Fire Sprayers and its Method of Fire Extinguishing Currently in Use in Amsterdam. In this book, Thunderheide outlines the shortcomings of the outdated methods of firefighting, the benefits of his new invention, and instructions on how to use it. But he also put his artistic talent to use, creating engravings which show in exquisite and beautiful detail his fire hose in action. It was from this book which we got the description of the town hall fire that we spoke about earlier. The fire hose, of course, looked like a giant snake. And so, in the straightforward manner of the Dutch, it was given that name, slung, snake. Never mind that the English word hose also comes from Dutch, hose, meaning stocking. Thunderheide sold his fire engine and hose around Europe, including one to the Russian Tsar, Peter the Great, while he was visiting the Dutch Republic in 1697. It is for this reason that the Russian word for hose is also schlang. And so that, ladies and gentlemen, is how through the invention of the fire hose, Jan van der Heide was able to harness the power of water.
How then do we wrap up our Captain Planet Dutch Discovery Bonanza with the final element, heart? Well, get pumped, because the final inventor we will be discussing today is one of the pioneers of artificial organs who was influential in the creation of the world's first artificial heart, Willem Johan Kolff. Fittingly for a person who would become intimately connected with affairs of the heart, Willem Kolff was born on St. Valentine's Day, February 14, 1911, in Leiden. His father, Jakob Kolff, ran a tuberculosis sanatorium in Beekbergen. Willem would watch how his father cared for and interacted with his patients, and the two would also look at x-rays of his patients together. All of this early exposure, pardon the pun, to medicine, would see him follow the example of his father, and in 1930, he began to study medicine at Leiden University. After graduating in 1937, he went on to work in internal medicine at Groningen University in 1938. It was during this time at Groningen that Kolf bore witness to something which would set the direction of his future, when he saw firsthand the slow and painful death of one of his patients, a 22-year-old man, from kidney failure. This experience seems to have been a trigger for the newly graduated young doctor, because from that moment on, he began to investigate ways to recreate the functions of the kidney with an artificial device. Research into this type of work had already begun earlier in the century when three doctors from the US, Roundtree, Abel and Turner, had created a machine called a vividiffusion apparatus, which was used to filter the blood of rabbits. But nobody had yet been able to make one which worked in humans. Kolff's work was interrupted by the Nazi German invasion of May 1940. He had actually been in The Hague attending his grandfather's funeral when he witnessed German bombers attacking military installations and dropping leaflets warning of the invasion. He immediately went to the main hospital in the city and volunteered for duty. There were many casualties who were in dire need of blood, so over the next four days, with a military escort and cash, he went about the war-struck city, purchasing the necessary equipment and looking for volunteers to donate blood. From doing this, he set up the first blood bank in Europe. These actions would win him a medal from the Red Cross in 1942. Not long after the invasion, his mentor in Groningen, Professor Leo Pollack Daniels and his wife, who were both Jewish, committed suicide. When a Nazi was appointed to replace Daniels, Kolf decided to leave Groningen and move to the town of Kampen in Overijssel, where he worked as a physician from 1941. While in Kampen, he became actively involved in the resistance movement against the Nazis. He insisted that men who were sent through the town on the way to forced labour camps in Germany be given proper medical attention, including many who didn't actually require any medical help. As a result, with the help of Kolf and his colleagues, more than 800 people were rescued from a horrible fate. He also continued secretly working on his artificial kidney machine in the evenings. Using incredibly crude equipment, such as a sewing machine, a bike chain, juice cans, the pump of a Model T Ford, the cellophane that you use to make sausage skins, a bathtub, and pieces from a crashed German plane, no joke, he was able to throw together a working prototype of his idea. He tried it out on 16 patients, 15 of whom died from their illness, and the other of whom wasn't really helped. A few months after the war ended, however, 
he tinkered with the machine and the liquid solutions he was using to clean the blood and tried it again. This time, his patient was a comatose 68-year-old woman suffering from renal disease who had been a member of the Dutch Nazi party. Given the hostility felt towards collaborators in the post-war period, many of his contemporaries thought she should just be left to die. But Kolf was a doctor dedicated to curing disease above anything else, and this time, his machine actually worked. Hooray! When the woman opened her eyes, she declared that she was going to divorce her husband because he wasn't a Nazi sympathizer. Not so hooray. A week later, her kidneys were once again fully functioning, and she would live for another seven years, making her the first person to ever be successfully treated by an artificial kidney, or as we know it today, dialysis. Following the war, Kolf also donated his kidney machines to hospitals around the world and became interested in creating machines to replicate other organs. But life in post-war Europe was difficult and there was a lack of funding for him to continue working on his research in the Netherlands. As such, Kolf and his family emigrated to the United States in 1950 where he took up a job at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation. While there, he helped develop heart-lung machines which basically take over from those organs and make sure that the blood stays oxygenated and circulating. It is because of these machines that open heart surgery is possible today. After this, he set his sights on creating a total artificial heart. Working with a team of researchers, including Japanese Dr. Tetsuzo Akutsu, Kolf was able to develop an artificial heart by 1957. It was a little less crude than his earlier kidney machine, being made out of a PVC called Plastisol, not shot down German aeroplanes, and it was made to pump by compressed air coming from outside of the heart. With the prototype ready, they got to work experimenting on animals, implanting their artificial hearts into dogs. On average, they were able to keep dogs alive for about 90 minutes, which was great news for science, but pretty bad news for the dogs. They continued to work on their design, however, creating versions that would be powered by internal electricity, which were able to keep dogs alive for up to six hours after the surgery. In 1967, Kolf then moved to Utah, where he became the director of the Institute of Biomedical Engineering at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. It was because of this role that he became known as the father of artificial organs. He assembled a team of researchers, and over the next decade and a half, they worked on artificial ears and eyes, and they continued improving his design for the artificial heart, this time mostly using cattle for the experiments instead of dogs. Each iteration became more and more effective, and finally, in 1982, after some design improvements by one of his students, Dr. Robert Jarvik, an application was made to put one of these artificial hearts into a human. The patient, a man named Barney Clark, was 61 years old and suffering from congestive heart failure. His condition was so bad already that he would not have been an eligible candidate for a transplant. On December 2nd of that year, the surgery took place and Barney Clark became the first person in history to live with a permanent total artificial heart. When he died 112 days later, it was because of a failure in his other organs. The heart still worked. Since his pioneering experiment, artificial hearts have been used in thousands of patients as a temporary measure while they wait for organ transplants. 
Colf retired in 1986 at the age of 75, but even in retirement he continued working on creating artificial lungs. Much to the annoyance of his wife, the two had been married since 1937, but they were divorced in 2000 after she finally decided that his, quote, constant tinkering, end quote, was too much to handle. He finally passed away in 2009, just shy of his 98th birthday. His work in creating dialysis, heart-lung machines, and artificial organs is believed to have literally saved the lives of millions of people. But today, we want to remember and honor him for summoning and reproducing the awesome power of the human heart. And so, dear listeners, with their powers combined, these have been just a few of the many people who, through their creativity and ingenuity, have helped propel the Low Countries to the forefront of human understanding and knowledge. Their innovations, the Mercator map, the telescope, the microscope, the sawmill, the fire hose, and the artificial heart, helped solve some of the most difficult problems of their eras. The five people we have talked about were all different. However, we are not oblivious to the fact that, on a demographic spectrum, they would have all fit roughly in the same section as educated white men. Fortunately, these days there is far more opportunity for a much wider range of people to explore the limits of their intelligence and imaginations and to innovate paths that will lead us into the future. Thousands of men and women in the low countries are doing this as we speak. As the threat of climate change continues to loom as the greatest challenge facing humanity in the 21st century, May we hope that the brilliant range of contemporary thinkers in the Low Countries will follow the lead of Captain Planet and use the mighty elements of earth, fire, wind, water, and heart to try and save the world from pollution. It will no doubt require a collective effort. So remember, folks, the power is yours! Do you want to know more about Flemish and Dutch history and culture? Visit www.the-low-countries.com This podcast is made by Republic of Amsterdam Radio. 